Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Uh, we're going to go into chapter 2, first four verses of chapter 2. And uh, see some new faces, so I'll do a quick recap of some things, just to give a background on Philippians. Um, here we have Paul writing a letter to the Philippian church. And if you can just imagine that Paul's writing this letter um, because there was no electricity, either by the light of day or uh, by, by candlelight. And here he's writing this letter as he's, be, as he's shackled to a guard. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and the Philippians he's writing to, um, they supported Paul through this whole thing. And, and Paul doesn't forget that. And, and he writes to them, uh, and he writes these affectionate words towards them, right? So verse 3, in chapter 1 he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Verse 4 he says, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And also in verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, he tells them, for for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is telling them that, guys, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. And, and everything's going to be okay. And he's telling them, you know, don't worry. Don't be afraid. And isn't it hard to believe that this is the same guy whose hatred um, drove him to imprison and kill people who followed Jesus? And now he's one of them. And talk about God's ability to redeem people. Think about it. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. You were responsible for imprisoning and killing Christians, and now you face the family and friends of those who you murdered or imprisoned. And you can only do that if God were real to you, and and if he was real to the ones that you affected. And you'd have to be pretty confident in the character of God to carry out what Paul did, even though he had so much baggage in his life. What do you think about people taking revenge on you? That the relatives and the friends of those people you killed would want some sort of payback? Wouldn't you have doubts about planting churches? I mean, how dare you plant a church after terrorizing others who simply wanted to do the same thing? Wouldn't you feel like the biggest hypocrite? See, God's redemption, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his love, they were very real to Paul. And it's the only way he could have done what is recorded in the Bible. It's the only way he could have had this confidence he had in this dream that he had. The Philippian church was founded because of a dream that he had. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. We have a map of of that so that you can get some uh, geography as to where that was. That yellow section, that's Philippi. So Greece, Italy, Turkey, that's Philippi. And even though he had circumstances in his life where where he could have made excuses, um, his belief in Jesus allowed him to establish that Philippian church. Can you imagine if Paul had allowed himself to be consumed with circumstances? If he allowed the guilt, the embarrassment, the shame of his past to haunt him so much that it paralyzed him to do nothing. But Paul repented and then he pressed forward. He realized that God's redemption, God's forgiveness, His grace, His mercy, His love, they were absolutely real. 
And it wasn't just a theory in his head. He knew it. He experienced it firsthand. And because of that, he couldn't keep the news to himself. He had to share it. He had to share what Jesus did for him, who saved his life, even though he was looking to kill those who followed him. And there's some of us here um, tonight that that might feel too guilty, maybe too embarrassed or shameful to serve God. And maybe your past haunts you or, or you can't fully believe that God has forgiven you. And if you have repented, you've been forgiven. It's time to dust yourself off, partner up with God and this community and deal with those things and then press on. And after Paul became a follower of Jesus, there were people that didn't believe in his conversion. Some thought that he was just setting them, setting them up. Many wouldn't go near him because they still feared him. And they didn't believe that he had actually changed. And he wasn't easily accepted into the Christian community. And when he goes to Philippi, he gets beat up. He gets imprisoned. And he could have gotten really discouraged. But Paul knew that God's forgiveness was real. That God's grace, his mercy, his love, they were real. And all those discouraging circumstances, they didn't have any power over him. I'm sure at times he was scared, he was discouraged, he was upset. But he also knew that God was with him. What if Paul gave up? What if he forgot that he was in the good news business, that he was in the life-saving business? And if you weren't here last week, you can listen to those messages to get a better understanding of those terms. But what if Paul gave up? If he gave up, we wouldn't have a significant chunk of the New Testament, would we? And for those of you who are are facing challenging circumstances, I want to encourage you to hold on to Jesus. Jesus. God is on your side, just like he was on Paul's side. And even if you feel you don't deserve it because of something you did, God still loves you. And bad and the bad circumstances you face are are allowed to be there so that your character has an opportunity to grow. And God is on your side to see you through that. And in times when we find ourselves in less than good situations, we have to look to Jesus. Let's go back several verses to verse 23, where we see that Paul is looking forward to being with Christ And then we'll look at Paul a little more closely before we get into the verses for tonight. Verse 23. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, the word depart is supposed to give us this idea of of loosening a ship from from its anchor or uh, the secure fixture it's fastened to on, on a pier or a harbor. And Paul is saying he desires to leave this world to be with Jesus, but it's not as an escape artist. Paul is not looking for excuses to run away from his problems. And some people want to escape from the world out of convenience or fear or pressure. But we're not escapists. Followers of Jesus Christ are not escape artists. We deal with what's in front of us because that's what God has with us, has to do with us. And Paul is not wanting to escape. He's saying that there's something better than being here, and that's being with Jesus. But, you know, he's not looking to run away from the circumstances that are right in front of him. And yes, he's looking to leave to be with Jesus, but he's not looking to escape from what his circumstances are right in front of him. Verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. See, Paul acknowledges that there are advantages for him to stay. And one of the main advantages is for their growth. And he knows he can help them mature in their faith. And he wants to be with them to encourage them and to help them thrive. Watching people grow spiritually is one of the greatest things to witness, isn't it? 
And it's so awesome to see someone you, you've shared the gospel with. They, they come to Jesus. But you know what is more awesome? When that person you shared the good news with matures enough so that they start doing the same thing that you did for them whenever that happened. That's great. It makes me really proud to see that. And it's so neat to see someone go from not knowing anything about Jesus to being a more mature follower of Jesus and doing what was once done for them. And Paul would love to be with Jesus, but he's also looking forward to seeing these guys grow. And it gives him great joy to witness them thrive. Verse 26. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And Paul wants to see them thrive spiritually and he wants to see, uh, wants them to experience the joy of, of partnering with one another once again. And now we get to the verses for tonight, starting in verse 27, where, where Paul exhorts them in the way that they should live. Verse 27 and 28. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. See, Paul wants their conduct to be worthy of Christ. He's really concerned about their lives reflecting the love of God in everything that they do. He wants them to be godly people, to be worthy of the gospel. Now, the words only let are interesting here because only let is not a suggestion. This is a command. It's an imperative Paul is appealing to their will, to their ability to choose and make decisions. He's telling them that they can live lives that reflect that they are followers of Jesus or that they are not his followers. That they can live lives that glorify God or choose lives that don't glorify God. And there are people who claim to know Christ even for just a short amount of time, who even in a relatively short span of time, they spiritually thrive and there is an evidence of growth. And then there are people who say that they've been Christians for years and years and years, but you really can't tell. You can't tell that they've committed themselves to Jesus. And there's no evidence of growth or, or progression. And the difference is in their will. The difference is in the choices. So what do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want the world? And some people want Jesus and they want the world, but you can't have both. And there's a choice to be made. So which one is it going to be? And Paul makes it clear to them and says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the way we live our lives has to be appropriate to the gospel. So what is the gospel to you? See, the gospel is holy. It's hopeful. It's freeing. It's many things that give us meaning. And our lives should reflect that reality. What is the gospel to you? And if we are followers of Jesus, then our lives should reflect that what that means to us, that we want to be with him. And if we profess that we love Jesus, it needs to be evident in the way that we conduct our lives. So we have to make a choice on how we're going to live. Are we going to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Colossians chapter one, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, living our lives worthy of the gospel is evidence of our relationship with Jesus as a follower of his. We need to live our lives in a tangible way that, that it proves who our Lord is. And the way we live is evidence of who our Lord is. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, 
Not everyone who, call, who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. See, it's not just what you say, but it's also what you do. It's not just claiming to be a Christian. There needs to be an evidence of that faith in Jesus. Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Jesus? It's not just saying that Jesus is your Lord. Are you living as though he is your Lord? If you were in a court of law and there was a a case against you to, to see if you're a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you of being one? See, when's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Do you do people even know you're a Christian at work or at school or or do you just kind of blend in and and no one knows you're a follower of Jesus? And if they don't know, why not? People know other things about you that are a lot less important. How can that how can it be that they don't know who your God is? See, we're in the good news business. And not only should it be reflected in what you say, but also in what you do conduct Yourselves worthy of the gospel. See, I've done a fair amount of traveling, and I think I'm pretty good at spotting Americans now. Um, they're usually the loud ones, and they have white tennis shoes. So that's. And I, I think I've also gotten pretty good at spotting Californians too, because they're they're the ones wearing shorts and flip flops, like no matter when. That's all that they're wearing. See, uh, I went to visit my wife. Uh, she was my girlfriend back then uh, when, when she lived in Spain one spring. And, and I would get all these different stares. Like, right? And because um, people were all bundled up. They had like scarves and hats and gloves and like trench coats and stuff. And I was wearing shorts and flip flops. I was walking around. It was spring. To me, that's normal. And it's a beach town. This is like a surfing town. Why would you guys be bundled up? So weird to me. But they thought I was weird. So, but it's not simply the way we look and dress, but it's also how we act. Right? As a Californian, I'm pretty laid back. The way I walk is different from a European. They walk, you know. <laughs> Californians, you know, laid back. Everything's cool. Right? I'm not, I'm not hurrying at all. The Europeans are like, I don't know. They're just tighter. Like, See, when you're, a, when you're a, a citizen of a particular country, you live like that. You, you act a certain way. And people can identify where you're from, right? People can spot an American. People can spot a Californian. People can also spot a follower of Jesus. And the conduct of our lives, the way we live, the evidence of our life is proof of our kingdom citizenship. It's not simply saying, I love Jesus. See, the way we live our life proves whether that statement is true. That's the point Paul is making, and he's encouraging us to live accordingly. Our our behavior reveals our citizenship. Now, keep in mind who Paul is addressing in this passage. This letter is to the followers of Jesus, so it pertains to those who follow Jesus. He's calling the followers of Jesus to live godly lives. That makes sense, doesn't it? But he's not writing this letter to some special called out Christians or or those who are the most mature or those who are in leadership. It's all Christ followers he's addressing. Verse one, right? Addressing all saints, bishops and deacons. No follower of Jesus is left out of those three descriptions. 
Now, let's go into the characteristics of walking worthy of the gospel within verses 27 and going into chapter two, verse four. And there's there are six of them that I'd like to point out. There might be more, but there are six of them that I've seen. And the first one is a good reputation. Notice verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. Being in good standing, having a good name. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37 tells us to let our yes be yes and our no, no. And as followers of Jesus, we should have a good name. Proverbs 22, chapter 22, verse 1 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that a good name is, is better than precious ointment. See, we need to have character. We need to have integrity, honor. There's a difference between those who have the wisdom of the world and those who follow the wisdom of Jesus. See, the world encourages us just to get ahead at all costs. See, God doesn't have to do that. He's God. There is no getting ahead. He's already ahead. So Jesus is encouraging us to, to get others ahead and not so much ourselves. See, there was a, a room full of students taking a test where one student got an A and another one got an F. They both missed the same question. They most, both missed one question. The student who got an F went up to the professor and asked why he failed when he only missed one exam while the guy next to him got an A. So he told the professor, hey, man, we got the same exact question wrong. How come I got an F and he got an A? Well, the professor said, I know. The, the other guy was honest and he, and he wrote, I don't know, right next to his answer. I don't know the answer. And the student replied, I know, I, I wrote, I don't know the answer either. <laughs> Character, integrity, honor, or is it all about cheating to get ahead? Do you want to put your life in the hands of a doctor who cheated to get their medical degree? No way. The way we live our life will be seen by others. And we need to have a good reputation, a good name, a good testimony of who we are in Jesus. Paul was concerned that they lived lives that glorified God. Otherwise, it's not consistent with being a follower of Jesus. It's such a disservice to all Christians who follow Jesus when when someone who claims to be a Christian lives otherwise. A hypocritical Christian is more damaging to the gospel than any non-believer. So we need to have a good reputation, a good name, a good testimony. Second characteristic is unity. Verse 27 still, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity makes the gospel more acceptable to others. It's a, it's, it's a characteristic of walking worthy of the gospel. Can you imagine if we were at odds with each other about what the gospel was? Man, what chaos. See, unity... Unity isn't the absence of conflict. It's not the lack of disagreement. Sometimes we get confused between what unity is and what compromise is. See, unity is agreement. It's, it's a proactive, aggressive type of agreeing. It's not being passive where, where the passivity is, is interpreted as agreement. Right? When you're, when you're getting married, do you take this woman to be your wife? Hmm. No, it's not compromise. Right? It's an agreement. I, yes. Do you, Mr. Man, take this woman or Mr. Mrs. Miss, take this man? There's an agreement to that, right? 
And we are united in sharing the gospel. And this is something we are all to do. And that's why I love partnering with other churches and, and followers of Jesus. I don't really care about advancing regeneration. Sorry, Board of Elders. I don't. I really don't. I care about advancing the kingdom. That's what I care about. And to be in unity with other believers. And I love meeting with people and talking with other people who are doing kingdom works. And I pray and meet with people regularly. These church planters all over Oakland or even... I'm talking to a church planner in South Carolina right now. We're praying with each other. And they're from all sorts of different Christian backgrounds. See, our loyalty is not to a denomination. Our loyalty is to Jesus. Number three is courage. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. To have courage, to hold fast, to stand strong in the face of adversity. See, Paul knew uh, what he was talking about because he lived it. He's not speaking from theory. He's speaking from experience. See, the Philippians faced opposition, but it didn't cause them to stop sharing the good news. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Romans during this time, they they were opposed to these guys. And Paul is encouraging them to to have courage, be bold, stand strong. In in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And as some of you know, sometimes this includes your own family. Some people are disowned by their family for accepting Jesus as Lord. And I know some of these people. I've never been disowned by my family, but they sure think I'm strange. They probably think I was strange even if I wasn't a Christian. So I don't know which is which. But anyway, my maternal grandfather, I have a funny story about him. So, so in my family, I have a ton of cousins and uncles and stuff. There's a Robert, Robert, Albert, Hubert, Herbert. Berts. So my grandfather got us all confused all the time. He called me Hebit all the time. And he called my cousin Herbert Abit all the time. And so whenever Hebit would get in trouble or Abit would get in trouble, oh, no, no, he, he got it wrong. I'm the other one. So, so then I tried not to... Anyway, maternal grandfather, Gong Gong, in my dialect of Chinese. He died over 10 years ago. Okay? I shared the gospel with him when, when he was alive, and, and he said he believed in Jesus. And, and then on his deathbed, um, while machines were keeping him alive, I shared with him uh, the gospel again, uh, even though the doctor said, he's not going to understand a word you're saying. So I, I did it anyway. And, and I prayed for him at his bedside and was talking to him about Jesus um, just spending time with him. I was the only grandchild in there. He had a lot of them. And, and I prayed that God would grant me just a few seconds to talk with him and, and that he'd understand what I was sharing about Jesus. And, and then later on that evening, he died. And then came the funeral, which was arranged by friends of the family. It wasn't even arranged by any of the family. My, my, my grandfather claimed to be a Catholic. He also believed in ancestor worship and Buddhism. So the funeral was this Traditional Buddhist funeral uh, with a ton of ancestor worship. And the only Christians there were my, my godmother, my, my dad, my sister, and me. 
out of hundreds of people. And in the funeral home where were a bunch of pictures of Christian stories all around. And, and I have some atheist uncles and, and other relatives who believe in God, but it's kind of like the, whatever God you believe in. Well, they started talking about all these pictures and what they meant. And, and so I went on to tell them about these different stories like Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and David and just kind of chronologically just going around the room and, and telling stories. It was just a really neat time of, of sharing the Bible. And I thought, oh, wow, is, some, is God doing something? This is, this is kind of cool. I'm getting to share this stuff. But later on, all this ancestor worship started happening. And my sister, she was like so scared. And she didn't know what to do. And she was asking me uh, what the right thing to do was in our, in our position. And we were being pressured to worship our ancestors and, and to be respectful to my grandfather. To offer our ancestors a drink offering, uh, uh, incense offering, uh, fake, this fake paper money offering and, and bowing down before them. So it was my family's turn. And so I went up holding my sister's hand and I told the officiant, she was this Buddhist lady, I said, I believe in Jesus. I only worship Jesus. I respect my grandfather. I loved him. But this is something I cannot do. And then they turned over to my sister after like trying to convince me, like, how can you do that? In front of all these people, disrespect your grandfather like that? All your relatives, all the friends, you can't do that. You need to do this. Absolutely not. Then they started trying to convince my poor little sister. Hey, you got to do this. You know, you can't disrespect the family. You got to do this. And started handing her incense, started handing her the drink, started handing her paper money. And she turned to me with this fear in her face and she tugged at me and she said, go, go, which is big brother or older brother in, in Cantonese. And, and, and I told them, She's a follower of Jesus, too. We can't do this. Then I told them I'd like to pray instead. Instead of doing this ancestor worship ritual stuff, I'd like to pray. So I prayed for, for my sister's fear of what was happening. I, I prayed for my relatives that they would understand what I was doing. And I prayed for all the people who, who were there who were grieving. And even though this was pretty uncomfortable, we have to choose who our Lord is. Who we worship. And no one has that place in my life except for Jesus. Not my wife, not my kids, not my extended family. No one. Jesus. And in verse 28, there's this phrase to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. What does that mean? Paul is saying that opposing the gospel is futile when others see your courage in the face of adversity. And by opposing the only way to salvation, they're assuring themselves. The judgment of God. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, by rejecting the gospel, you're, you are also rejecting the only way in which you can be saved. By rejecting Jesus, you reject his advocacy. So instead of receiving God's grace, you'll be receiving God's judgment. Verse 29 Philippians. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. See, notice the word granted in verse 29. See, that, that word means to do something pleasant or agreeable, to, to do a favor to you, to give something graciously, freely, to have something bestowed upon you. This verse is saying, to you it is graciously given. 
as a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. You're thinking, what? Suffering is a privilege? No, not just suffering. Suffering for Jesus' sake is a privilege. See, it's all how you look at it, right? You can take it as, woe is me, my life stinks, all this stuff is bad, I hate my life. Or you can look at it as, as it as an opportunity. An opportunity for God to be glorified in that situation. See, Paul looked at his imprisonment as a time to suffer for Jesus' sake. He could have been kicking himself like, man, I should have never believed in Jesus. Shoot! Right? And he was, he was going to bring the gospel forward regardless of circumstance. In Acts 3, there's a story of Peter and John going up to the temple in the hour of prayer. And they went up through a place that was called the Beautiful Gate. And we have a slide of this. And at this gate, it's, it's a sealed off gate because the Muslims have sealed it off because we claim that this is where Christ returns. He, he returns through this gate. So they thought that concrete could keep Jesus out. And so the other thing that they did was they placed a cemetery right in front of this gate because if you walk over dead people, you're defiled, you're dirty and stuff. So, so Jesus can't return because we also have dead people guarding the gate as well as concrete guarding the gate. So... Anyway, that's that. We'll go into that when we go over Acts or some other time where that's pertained. Anyway, just some background. And so as they were entering in from this gate, there was a crippled man begging there. And Peter and John tell the man to, to look at them. And, and the man looked, expecting to receive something in the form of alms. But that wasn't what Peter and John gave him. The crippled beggar was expecting an offering for him to live off of or whatever. But Peter said in verse verses 6 through 8, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And then it was at that time that a crowd started gathering and, and Peter took that opportunity to share the gospel. And in verse 12 of chapter 3 of Acts, Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? See, Peter is saying, it's not us. It's Jesus. And um, by the way, you hung him on the cross not too long ago. And it was in Jesus' name and by his power that this guy was healed. Well, well, these guys aren't happy about this, about what Peter is telling them, so they're arrested. And later on, they get out of jail and they're told to keep quiet. Don't you go telling about that crazy Jesus stuff. That's loco, right? And so, but they followed how the Spirit was leading and they started preaching the gospel and then they were arrested again. Then in Acts chapter 5, the council was plotting to kill Peter and John. Then, then this respected Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up and told them to, to chill out. Because, you know, if you react in this way, it's just going to get worse. Just chill out, let it, let it kind of blow by. And so verse 40, chapter 5 of Acts, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. See, if you're in God's will, and someone is opposing you, even to the point of being physically assaulting towards you, 
Rather than shying away and saying, Oh man, he hurt me. Maybe we should rejoice. That we suffered for his name's sake. Verse 29, chapter 1, Philippians. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Granted. It's by God's grace that we believe in him, but it's also by his grace that we suffer for his sake. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. See, Paul was in prison suffering for the sake of Jesus. And so did others who believed in Jesus. And the Philippians knew Paul was suffering in prison. And you know who's listening to this letter in Philippi? This is so interesting to me. The Philippian jailer. The guy who started the church with Lydia. Right? And, and their families. Paul led this guy to Jesus after he wanted to kill himself after that earthquake. And Paul's letter must have been so profound to this jailer because he himself came to know Jesus while he was guarding over Paul. And he must have totally understood where Paul was coming from. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And Paul continues to speak on the evidence that, that we have a relationship with Jesus. And here's the fourth characteristic of walking worthy of the gospel. It's compassion. Compassion is an evidence of walking worthy, walk, walking worthy of the gospel. It is proof that the love of God is within us. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love. See, when going through persecution or, or any hardship for that matter, see, loving comfort is always welcome. The compassion of your heart is a sure sign of being a follower of Jesus. And how you treat people, especially those who are hurting, is, is telling of how you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The compassion is a telltale sign of, of walking worthy of the gospel. And it's not just sympathy, because sympathy is just having a sense of what's going on. It goes deeper than that, into empathy. And empathy suffers alongside of another. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And the compassionate heart goes a really long way. How you, how you show compassion speaks volumes to another person. And it's a true mark of a follower of Jesus. And, and it's not just what you say, because talk can be kind of cheap sometimes. It's also what you do. I had a microbiology teacher in college, uh, Dr. Kinnis was his name, or probably is still his name. He was one hard donkey. Um, my, my college roommate and I were in the same class, or actually both of my roommates were in the same class, and one of them was asked to be a best man in one of his friend's weddings up in Canada during finals week. So Dr. Kinnis made it clear from the very beginning in the syllabus, no exceptions not here for the final, fail. No exceptions. And he told him that if he missed the final, you can miss it, you'll just fail. And so my friend was pretty upset. He's like, how can this guy not understand? Like, I'm not asking for like a cruise. And he showed up to take the final several months later and his friend was, who was getting married was on his mind. 
He wasn't happy about it at all, and it seemed that Dr. Kinnis didn't care. Well, at the end of that academic year, it was looking like my friend, and who was also my roommate, wasn't going to be able to come back to school because he couldn't afford it. Do you know who fought tooth and nail to get him more scholarship money from the university? Dr. Kinnis. And even though it looked like he didn't care a semester ago, his actions proved otherwise. And I never looked at him the same after that. Initially, I just thought he was a jerk. And he's actually a pretty neat guy. He's a really great guy. I found out later that he's helped many students in the same way. He's the academic advisor to, to many people um, in the biology department with pre-med, pre-dental, pre-optometry, all this stuff. And, and, and in his council of, of, of um, helping them to get out and serve, he created this thing called Team Luke, which was all these um, really cool short-term mission trips. They go to all over the world doing medical missions. And he's the academic advisor for all this. He does have a heart of compassion, just probably not in his bi- microbiology class. And... <laughs> And yes, maybe he could work on empathy in that moment by sharing some emotion like, I know you want to be the best man, but you know, I'm a hard donkey or something. And, but his actions spoke volumes. And, and he would, he, you could definitely tell where his heart is at. And, and the fifth characteristic of walking worthy of the gospel is found in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. This is humility. Being a glory hog or vanity smurf or striving for human praise or, you know, exalting yourself. That's not walking worthy of the gospel. Sorry, vanity smurf. And instead of seeking to lift ourselves up, we should desire to see others lifted up. There's there needs to be a willingness to serve others and see them succeed. And that's the mark of greatness in the kingdom. See, the church isn't a place to showcase yourself and get everyone's attention to focus on you. You see, that type of attitude is not unifying because it's self-serving. It takes the attention off of God and it places it on you. Humility is a way that we take the spotlight out of ourselves or off of ourselves. Verse 3, but in lowliness of mind. This means that we have a modest opinion of ourselves. It's being meek and being self-aware that we don't become all-important. To take the spotlight off of ourselves, putting it on Jesus. It's really what's best for us, because in striving for all that attention, you just never get enough. How can you get enough? You just always want more. It's like, I have enough glory. Please, please, oh, please. Okay, okay, sure. Right? So we can't handle it properly. But God, God can handle it. And God wants to be the one who lifts people up. Who, who, you know, people just, you know, they love you one moment, then they hate you the next. Right? It's kind of fickle that way. But serving God, that, that can only be done in humility. And there's no, no room for other attitudes. See, other attitudes get in, the, get in the way. You start feeling entitled to things that aren't rightfully yours. You start thinking your life is yours and, and that God is just there to serve you. Forgetting that we are here to also serve God. And there are people who think first of themselves and, and what they want. How different is that from living a life of humility? That's not a question you ask if you're living a humble life. We need to be humble. And in that humility, God can use us. People who care very little, if at all, about getting our own way. So, so that whatever God wants to do, we let him do it. It's his. 
And so we are abandoned to God's will and we don't struggle and reason as to whether we will do what we know to be wrong. We don't hesitate to do what we know to be right. These things just become obvious to us. There's no internal debate. And even the blessings that, that God has bestowed upon us, we can give them up freely because we have humble hearts. You bless me, Lord, you want to take... Hey, all yours, God. No problem. You're God. Can you do whatever God wanted of you right now? Could you do that? If not, is humility lacking in your life? See, God wants to do a work in you, but if, if you always want to be noticed and... And you're all and you're an attention seeker. It doesn't happen that way. God loves to work with the humble. Those who show up on Saturday and help clean the church facilities and hardly anyone knows who they are. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that so much more significant than the praise of people or trying to get the spotlight and whatever other ministry that you're trying to vie for? So we do things for the Lord. At least I hope we do things for the Lord. And this church had humble beginnings, and, and some of you were here back then. And what's so great is to see how many of you have invested into this community all the years prior, and when there were so few, but, but you invest equally as much now. And it's so encouraging to see that you want to serve Jesus. It's so easy to see that many of you are just here to serve Jesus. It's obvious. And not, not for people to recognize you. And that's a beautiful thing. That, that's a humble spirit. It's, it's a godly spirit. And God will use you with a humble spirit. But if you want to take glory that rightfully belongs to God, that's not going to happen. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Verse 16, chapter 12, Romans. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind high on things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. We have a lot of uh, that going on, myself included. Chapter 2, verse 4, we have the sixth characteristic of walking worthy of the gospel. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is all about sacrificial love. And instead of seeking to be served, we seek to serve others. Sacrificial love for others. You see, Jesus served others. And if we are followers of Jesus, we serve others. We are service-oriented and we look for the needs of other people. And this lends to unity. Unity in spirit. Unity in the church. And it helps thwart this selfish attitude of, of the customer mentality and the consumer mentality that we talked about last week. See, we're not, we're not a restaurant. We're not a supermarket. We're not a religious services provider or a programs provider. We don't have those things for sale. We don't have goods or services for sale. We're family. You don't pay your dad, right? When he's like, hey, dad, uh, love me. You don't do that. We're families. Love you. And when, and when we come to church and ask, what am I going to get out of that church? Wrong question, man. You're asking the wrong question. The question to be asked is, what can I offer this church? This is not a department store. What can we offer you? I don't know. My shirt, my hat. I'll give it to you if you need it. 
This is not a department store. This is a place to get equipped for service. To share the good news, to save lives. You can come here with an expectation to receive something, but the expectation we have here is that whatever you receive, you need to give that away. And if you're coming here just to get something, you're going to be disappointed. You are. But if you want to come here and get equipped for service, you'll get it. And it's not because that, that we're so great. And we have something to offer you. We have something to teach you. But it's because God is great. God has something to teach you. And it's because the Spirit is here. And there's proof that He's worked in this church. All you got to do is look at the past eight years or even the past nine months. There are a lot of people being used by God right here in this room. There are a lot of service opportunities to gain experience in ministry. The Holy Spirit is here. So it's a great place to learn. And the Word of God is taught here throughout the week, whether in prayer meetings, the school of rock, community groups, even in my Taekwondo classes. By the time a kid reaches black belt, do you know how many verses that kid has to memorize? At least 20. At least. For their black belt test, they have to memorize 10 alone, so it's probably 30 that they have to memorize. At least. And then the things you receive here, the expectation is that you will use whatever you received in your life and you would give it away. That's worthy of the gospel. It's a way that you show you know Jesus. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not about ignoring your own interests. God is not saying, like, just kill yourself, ignore every ambition of your life. It says, but also for the interests of others. Because sometimes we just get consumed with ourselves. And we are not to just focus on things just on our own interest, but to turn it towards God, to turn it towards others. Can you imagine if we became the biggest cheerleaders for others' successes, other ministries, other churches, other uh, campus groups, other whatever God, Jesus, kingdom things? Can you imagine how awesome that would be for other ministries and other churches to, to feel us encouraging them to cheer for them, for their successes? What a great testimony as to the unity of the followers of Jesus. You know, regardless of the differences we have in name, that we come together under the banner of Jesus. I would love for a bunch of churches to be successful around here. Some churches are like, hey, I'm here. Um, you need to plant a church farther away. No way, man. Crowd this place with churches. I can't minister to everybody. There's some people that I just can't speak the same language with. Our cultures are too different. Our age differences are too much. We need everybody. So I pray that we not only focus on our growth as a church or as a ministry to succeed, but that we also turn it towards others for their success. And we need to pray for other churches, other parachurch organizations, other works of the kingdom going on out there, supporting them. Not just in prayer. With our works, with our finances, with our volunteerism going there to serve them. To be in prayer for them. And to be there when they are in need. See, this economy is really bad. But God has blessed us so much. I, I can't even explain it. I don't feel it. I don't think the church feels it. We have this huge project that we have lined up going across the street for a community center. It's a six-figure budget. God has blessed us. We need to bless others. Why We, we can't hoard all this stuff. We need to bless others. We need to pray for others. We need to find out what's going on in the community where we're not effective because, not because we don't want to be, just because 
We don't know how to be and, and partner with them and, and pray with them and, and, and bless them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your infinite resources. For showing us the, the qualities of walking worthy of the gospel, speaking through Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for being patient with us. I ask God that um, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to see people through your eyes. To have compassion towards them. To be humble. Have sacrificial love. Lord, we, we need you in our life. And um, it's not of, ourself, of, our, of ourselves that um, something awesome is going to happen. I mean, we, we as humans can only carry it so far, but we want something miraculous, God. Something that is totally above expectation from any human so that we can point it to you and give you all the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.